Open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we have been working through this marvelous gospel chapter by chapter and verse by verse, seeing what our Lord has to teach us through this wonderful gospel. We have seen many wonderful things about who Jesus is, what He has done, and what He has come to accomplish. We are here at about the midway point of the book, and we find a significant shift in Jesus' ministry from what we had seen up to this point, up till now. Jesus has been focused on progressively revealing His identity and establishing His authority as the Messiah. Well, beginning with the text that we examined last week, Jesus shifts His focus from from establishing His identity and His authority to establishing His mission and His purpose about why He has come into the world. And He said in our text last week, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected and killed, and then afterward rise again. Peter, of course, was resistant to that idea at first. He had these ideas of a political Messiah that would come and and cast off the shackles of the Romans and, and free the nation of Israel and restore the kingdom in that way. Jesus has to rebuke Peter right back and challenge him to be thinking the things of God rather than the things of man. That was Jesus' challenge to Peter. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of man. Peter isn't seeing quite clearly just yet. We've been using that analogy of, of sight because that's, that's what our Lord gave us in the living parable of healing this blind man that we saw in verses 22 through 26. There was a two-stage healing where at first Jesus healed the man partially to where he could see but only in a blurry way and then he healed him completely the rest of the way to where he was seeing completely clearly again. Well, that is what Jesus is doing with the uh, disciples. He is giving them sight, and at this point, their, their vision is still blurry. They still do not quite see clearly. They still don't quite fully understand. Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah, which is, which is huge. Yes, He's the long-awaited Messiah. He's come. But the purpose of that coming, it's still blurry for Peter. He still doesn't quite see clearly just yet, and so Jesus is progressively making that more clear and bringing, patiently bringing the disciples along. This text before us today is often given the heading or the label of the cost of discipleship. And there's a book that is out there by that name, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I did title my sermon according to that, that same heading after that tradition. Is, it's an apt heading in many ways, the cost of discipleship, though in some ways the concept of the cost of discipleship is somewhat paradoxical. Indeed, there, there are certain tensions that, that we hold even within this text, and we hold these in conjunction with other passages of Scripture that, that as we read these things, as we try to hold these things in tension, there are several questions that naturally arise from our study of the text that we must seek to answer. And one of those questions is this, what is the relationship of salvation to discipleship? Are all believers disciples? How do we think of an individual who might profess faith in Christ but then does not follow through with discipleship? And we will get into all of these questions in due time. In many ways, this text is a a sobering text. 
Whatever direction we go with the answers to those questions, there's, there's no room to, shout, to shrug off the importance of discipleship. The consequences are just too significant. Just by way of, of fair warning for us today, uh, I manuscript my sermons, and I always have a pretty good idea of, of how long my sermons are going to go based on the word count. This one's a little bit on the longer side of things. You know, maybe you're thinking, oh, he always preaches long anyway. Well, guess what? Today's just a little bit longer. Uh, but I, no, it won't be, hopefully it won't be terribly long. But I just want to give us a fair warning up front. But the reason for it, there's, there's an important reason for this today. This text, in many ways, as I was reflecting upon this sermon, reflecting on the text that's before us today, I believe in many ways may be one of the more important texts and sermons that we will have covered in our time together this year. There's some weighty things in this passage of Scripture, some significant concepts. And this is also a text that is often debated and is a source of contention between believers that understand this text in different ways. And so we want to we consider what this text has to say. We want to give, give fair consideration to the different ideas that are present. But the weight of what is before us cannot be easily dismissed. And so we would do well to spend the time to consider what is within this text. So I'm going to go ahead and read our text for us today. This is Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 34. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels." And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Just a few things to remind us of as we begin to study this text today. Remember that this teaching comes on the heels of Jesus correcting Peter. Peter hears of the purpose of the Messiah, that the Messiah must suffer and die, and Peter says, no, 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 this must not happen. And and Jesus has to rebuke Peter and say, no, you're not thinking rightly here. <clears throat> Peter was sending, setting his mind on the things of man and not the things of God. And so Jesus takes this opportunity, says, aha, we got a teaching opportunity here. And he calls the crowd together. They're, they would not have been far away. The crowds are always following Jesus around. He calls the crowd together and he's going to teach them about discipleship. But what it means to follow Jesus it's as though Jesus says, you know, okay, if you keep setting your mind on these earthly things, well, here is the result. Peter is expecting a political Messiah who would free them from Roman rule. Well, Jesus says, that's, you're setting your mind on the things of man, not the things of God. If you're going to follow me, you've got a hard road in front of you. So he says in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross 
and follow me. We see here that discipleship demands self-denial. Jesus sets this up with this question, with this statement, if anyone would come after me, if, if, if anyone would come after me. So Jesus, at this point, he's not just addressing just the 12 disciples and those in the immediate vicinity there around him that day, but this, is, this applies to anyone. If anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to follow me and to learn from me and to be my disciple, then this is what you must do. These are the demands upon that individual that come from our Lord. The three things that he lists, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and let him follow me. These are the demands of discipleship. Now, I have the ESV in front of me this morning, and the ESV is generally a very good translation. I just have a slight difference of opinion with the ESV and the translators on this. I think the translators of the New American Standard did a better job in this particular verse. Where it says, let him, that's really almost a permissive idea. But the original words in this text are imperatives. And imperatives are words of commands. So these are commands. So in my view, the, the NASB, I think, brings it into English quite well where the NASB says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, he must take up his cross, he must follow me. That brings those imperatives, the command idea, into the English in a better way. So for those who wish to come after Christ, this is what you must do. These are not optional for discipleship. These are not things that you can just, well, you know, you could take it or you could leave it, but, you know, feel free to do as you will. No, this is called a cost of discipleship for a reason. This is why that heading is often given. You don't get to have discipleship without these elements. So let's consider those three demands. The first command, he must deny himself, the concept of self-denial. Peter wants to rebuke the Lord and Jesus says, uh, nope, I've got a reverse for you. I'm, gonna re I'm going to rebuke you. You need to deny yourself. You cannot establish the terms of my Messiahship for me. You need to submit yourself to the thoughts of God. Self-denial is a necessity for discipleship because the very process, the very idea of following someone, that, that presumes the idea that you're no longer following yourself and no longer following your own way of doing life. So in a sense, discipleship is self-denial. It's, it's, it's baked into the very idea of following Jesus. I'm using that word discipleship an awful lot. I haven't defined that yet today. I've defined it in previous times, but it's the concept of just following Jesus and what that means to, to follow after Him, the concept of apprenticeship or to mentorship from Jesus Christ. Well, if we're following Him, if we're learning from Him, if we are His students, then the, the concept of discipleship itself communicates the idea of self-denial because it says, okay, what the Master is teaching me, that's how I'm going to live my life. Not insisting upon my own way, not insisting about what I want to do and my agenda and what, what my plans are for my life, but what the Lord would have, what the Master would have for me in my life life. Now, I used to work for an electrical company down in, in downtown Louisville, 
we would often get apprentices who would come and they would, they would be trained for the, doing electrical work and uh, they would be given instruction and things. And sometimes apprentices would come to us and they would have their own ideas about how they think the job should be accomplished. And the issue, the, the whole concept with that, the whole concept of an apprenticeship, the idea of an apprenticeship is very analogous to the concept of discipleship. Right? There, there's, a, there's a master and there's a student. There's, there's a teacher and a student. There's, there's a master and apprentice. There's someone teaching information about how you do certain things. Well, when the apprentices have their own idea of how they want to do things, rather than submitting to what the master electrician is trying to tell them, okay, you need to do things in this particular way, Things didn't always go well. Right? There were problems that would be created. We find out, oh, ah, the apprentice didn't do things as instructed and it created these problems. The apprentices that, were, that stuck around, they were the ones who eventually learned that it was best to do what the master, elect, master electrician was instructing them to do. And perhaps they didn't understand why at first. And perhaps they thought they knew a better way. But over time, they learned if they did as instructed by the master electrician that eventually they would come to understand why things were done in a particular way and they would catch on to those things and things would flow a lot more smoothly. Because the reality is, is more often than not, it, the, the idea of you know, doing what the master instruction was instructing them to do, it was not just because the, the electrician was just stuck in his ways and, and he didn't wasn't open to new ideas. No, no, there's, it's because there's really a right way to do a job in many, many wrong ways. And if an apprentice cannot learn to set aside his own ideas and embrace the instruction of the master, he doesn't last in the trade. And I can't tell you how many, I've lost count how many apprentices came through and faded out because they were not able to follow after what they were instructed to do. Self-denial. If you would come after Christ, you have to be willing to submit your will to His. He must take up His cross. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up His cross. He must take up His cross. You know, there's an idiom that's very common. Uh, and, and quite honestly, actually, I haven't heard this idiom for a number of years, but uh, I had heard it several years ago from individuals who would, who would speak of things, maybe the different hardships that they experienced in life, and they would say, oh, you know, this is just my cross to bear. You know, maybe it's they got back pain or something, and it's just, oh, you know, that back pain's not going away. It's just my cross to bear. And we would just speak of it about the, the different hardships that we might experience, the inconveniences that we experience in this life. But that is not the idea of what Jesus is getting at in this text. Jesus is not telling His disciples that they just have to persevere through whatever inconveniences they encounter in this life. Now, this was a call to be willing to die to self and even possibly to die physically if the moment came for that in the course of life. Take up His cross. The cross was an instrument of execution. You know, we, use, we use crosses in our decoration and things today. Some, many churches, many homes, uh, jewelry and things have the cross that's associated with that. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a, it's a symbol of, the, of what Jesus Christ did for us, right? We, we recognize that. But the cross, 
in these days, it's a symbol of, of not just death, but a symbol of execution. It's a symbol of humiliation. You know, some have suggested the concept of, of wearing a, a cross around your neck in the, in the first century, going all the way back to those days. That would have been akin to something like wearing like the electric chair around our necks today. Right? That's an odd thing to do. But even that doesn't quite do justice to the concept of the cross because the electric chair is designed to be an instant and humane form of execution, right? It's done and it's over with. Whereas the cross was not designed to be humane at all. The cross was designed to be the most excruciating and painful and slow death possible. That as you hung upon that cross, your lungs would fill with fluid and you would eventually die of your own suffocation upon the cross from the fluid that would build in your lungs. The Romans, they would take people who were on death row and they would force them there. You know, we think of the cross, okay, there's a cross right there. We got the upright beam and the cross piece. They would, the, the upright beam is, remains fixed in the ground and they would, they would take that cross piece and they would put it upon the backs of the people who would be executed and they would carry that cross beam up the hill to the location where they would be executed. And there they would be nailed to that beam and then hung to the vertical piece and hung out to die. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, it's a very, very vivid picture of what he was calling his disciples to do. Graphically communicates the idea that following Jesus requires a willingness to die. A willingness to surrender your very life. In the next verse, he's going to say, Who would, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for the sake of the gospel, for my sake and the gospels, will save it. A willingness to die for Christ if it comes to that. Then there's the third demand. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's an interesting grammatical shift with this third command, and I I don't often bring out all of these grammatical features for us in sermons, but sometimes it's so significant for us to understand that it's, it's key to understanding the text. The first two commands in this text of deny himself and take up his cross, these are called aorist imperatives, and with this third command we have a present tense imperative. So without getting too much into the grammatical weeds on that, the, the first two commands, uh, the aorist tense often describes an action that is, that is almost viewed as a whole without a particular emphasis upon the duration of that com- uh, action or things, then the present tense is often used to communicate an ongoing action. So it seems that with these commands, Jesus Christ is likely communicating, okay, these first two commands, they represent decisive decisions or commitments that we make within our lives. And then following Jesus is that ongoing idea, that ongoing process of continually following Him. So what's this 
this bizarre, radical idea that if we're going to follow Jesus, we must actually follow Him. All right, if we're, we're going to claim to be a disciple of Jesus and say, yep, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, yeah, Jesus died for my sins, and we're going we're to claim that we believe that, well, then that we, we actually need to follow through in following Him in discipleship and doing what He has commanded us to do. We don't get to call ourselves disciples if we aren't actually doing the thing that the Master is instructing us to do. This is to be an ongoing aspect of the life of the disciple in following Jesus. These are the demands that Jesus makes. If anyone, anyone, come after me, this is what they must do. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's a big price to pay for discipleship. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to pay that price? Jesus is going to provide two reasons for why it is indeed worth it, and He's going to ask two rhetorical questions that, that demonstrate the logic of it before considering the consequences of failing in this regard. First, let's look at the two, two reasons that demonstrate that discipleship is wise. Yes, the cost of discipleship, it is, it is worth it for us to pursue this. It is wise. Why? He provides two reasons. Verse 36. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Notice the word for at the beginning there. That's a, that's a causal word. It connects logically with what proceeds. This is what it, uh, discipleship requires. Why? Well, because this is why. Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever would lose his life will save it. Jesus says if you try to save your own life, if you try to, try to do things on your own, you it's not going to work out for you. You'll end up losing your own life in the process. Right? The call of discipleship is a call to self-denial and death. But, but if you try to avoid those things and you say, no, 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 I, I, I want to do things my own way. I, I'm not really too keen on this whole death thing, Jesus. I, I think I'm just going to pass over that. If we're not willing to go down that road and we're not willing to submit our will unto His... Jesus says you will end up losing your life. It's kind of a paradoxical idea there. Oh, it, it, those who seek to save will actually lose, and those who lose it for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel will end up preserving their life. Think of the different passages of Scripture that teach us the idea of a, of a spiritual death. We think of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Right? There's that separation that comes for those who reject Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you try to save your life on your own terms and in your own way without looking unto Him, that is your end. But on the flip side, uh, there, there's a positive side to this. If, if you lose your life, if you say, no, I, I'm, I'm willing to die to self. I'm willing to deny my own self. I, I'm willing to die for Jesus Christ and submit unto Him. If you follow Jesus, then you will find that your life is safe in Christ. Again, that, that, paradox, that paradoxical idea. You lose your life in trying to save it, but you save your life in the willingness to surrender it unto Him.
And when you put it that way, the demands of discipleship almost kind of seem like a no-brainer, don't they? It's like, yeah, of course, why, why wouldn't I do that? Look what I stand to gain and lose. But so often we want to, we want to cling to the things of this world and, and we want to just hang on to our own ideas of life and our own way of doing life and, and doing things and we don't want to think about the things that the Lord would have us to do and what He wants to build within us. And Jesus says, it's only when you truly surrender yourself unto Him that you are truly alive. It's costly, but it's wise. Jesus then asks two rhetorical questions to further illustrate the wisdom of discipleship. Discipleship is indeed worth it. In verse 36, he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? So what if you gain the whole world? But you lose your soul. What have you really gained? What if you're the richest person on planet Earth? You could afford every luxury that money could buy. You could buy, buy any car, any food, any company. You could get yourself hanging out with any celebrity you might want, travel anywhere in the world, see anything you want to see, and you have all the riches that, any, that you could ever have. And yet, it costs you your very soul. Is that worth it? Who in their right mind would take that deal, right? Like, you know, you, you can keep all of that. I, I, I value my soul. There is no profit in gaining the world but losing your soul. The second question in verse 37, what can a man give in return for his soul? I mean, your life, your very soul, let's, let's, let's just say your soul, it, it's up for auction. What would you give for your soul? All right, the bidding starts at self-denial. And then moves up to, co to complete self-death. What are you willing to bid? There's an evangelist by the name of Ray Comfort who goes out and he seeks to get people to think about eternity and consider the value of their lives and their souls. And one of the questions that he asks them, I think is a, is a good way to get people thinking about the, the value of life. He says, oh, you know, would you sell your eye for a million dollars? Most people would say no. I, I value my eyesight. Well, you know, some people might say, well, I've got, I've got a second eye, so sure, I'll, I'll take the million dollars. Well, then he follows that up with, okay, that's all well and good. Would you sell both your eyes for $2 million? There's nobody that says, oh, yeah, sign me up, right? It, it doesn't matter because the, the value of, of seeing and the, and the quality of life that that brings to us, that we wouldn't trade that for any money in the world, no one is willing to give up their eyes for any amount of money. Our eyesight is precious to us. How much more so our very souls. Our soul is priceless. There is no price that you wouldn't pay for your soul. What can a man give in return for his soul? So Jesus knows that the demands of the discipleship, that the, the, the demands are high but it's a high-stakes game. The cost is worth it. Discipleship is wise. And then he ends this section with a warning. In verse 38, 
Denial of discipleship is a denial of Christ. We see this in verse 28 where he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Whoever is ashamed of me. The concept of being ashamed as you look at the flow of the text and, and the way Jesus sets up these hypothetical situations and these rhetorical questions. The concept of being ashamed of Christ is parallel in the text with, with seeking uh, to save your own life or, or the, the concept of shame is connected or parallel with failing to, uh, to lose your life for the sake of Christ and the gospel or failure, uh, failure to consider the cost of your own soul. So Jesus is teaching us here that failure to be a disciple is really shame of Jesus Christ and Him and His words. What? You don't want to be like Christ? You don't want to follow your life and pattern your life after the Savior, the one who came to earth and died on the cross and, and gave His life as a ransom for your sins? You don't want to pattern your life after that? You want to reject that in your life? You're ashamed of Christ? Well, anyone who is ashamed of me and my words, He says... In this adulterous and sinful generation. That phrase, adulterous and sinful generation, there's that phrase, this generation. It's, it's used idiomatically to speak of, uh, of, the, of the current age, so to speak. That this is what typifies this, the characteristics of the age. It is a, it is a, a time characterized by, by adultery and sinfulness. And, and the concept of adulterous generation there is not necessarily speaking to marital infidelity, although it certainly can be included within that. It's applicable to that. But there's a, a broader level of infidelity, of faithfulness unto the Lord. Our time is not characterized by faithfulness and righteousness. Everywhere we look in the world around us, we're surrounded by unfaithfulness to different individuals on different levels, unfaithfulness unto the Lord, and unrighteousness. It's a sinful generation. And in such a time, surrounded by such things, there are certainly going to be pressures upon us to be conformed to this world and to take on those characteristics upon our own lives. There's pressure from the world if you want to fit in, if you want to be just like everyone else. There's all kinds of pressure to just get in line with these things. Well, Jesus says, if you are ashamed of me before this generation of, of people who live in this manner, and if you succumb to the pressures of this world, then I will be ashamed of you when I come in glory. And with those words, Jesus predicts His second coming when He does return and He will rule and reign upon the earth as we have spoken of at different points in our time together today. We do believe that Jesus Christ is coming back and He will establish His earthly kingdom and He will rule in truth, righteousness, and justice. That is a coming reality. It is a sure thing. And Scriptures teach us at different places that when Jesus Christ does establish that kingdom, that those who belong to Him will rule and reign with Him in that kingdom. So there's a passage in, in 2 Timothy that speaks as if we, are, if we remain with Him, we will reign with Him. And there are passages within the book of Revelation as well that speak of the saints reigning with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. But Jesus says that if you're ashamed of Him, 
that privilege will be denied to you. There are several questions that naturally arise from this, but before I get to those, I just want to look at one last thing here in this text as we just just dip into chapter 9 just ever so slightly, where we see eventually that discipleship will bring a clear sight. Jesus says, truly I say to you, though there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus has been teaching His disciples about true sight. Peter wasn't seeing clearly. He was interested in his own agenda and and what he thought the Messiah was to do. So Jesus challenges him, no, you have to deny yourself that agenda. You have to submit to the Lord's direction. The cost is indeed high, but it is worth it. And then we have this statement, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And there is a lot to unpack within that one verse right there, and we're going to save some of that for next week, but I believe this is a reference to the transfiguration that is about to flow out in the, in the verses that follow, which, and uh, we're going to see more about that next week. But Jesus, what He's saying here is that He's going to give a, a kingdom preview to His disciples within the transfiguration, all right? That, and Peter's going to refer to that within the book of 2 Peter as well as he reflects upon that in 2 Peter chapter 1. But again, more on that next week. You have to come back to hear that sermon. <laughs> but for now, as this section is about, as, as, as Mark wraps up this section about seeing clearly, what does this have to do with discipleship? Well, I believe this is Jesus graciously giving the disciples a promise that you know, though they see, they still see a little bit fuzzy. It's still a little bit blurry. They still don't quite have the full picture in view. And Jesus has been so patiently bringing them along. But with this promise right here that there are some who are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God when it's come with power, there's a promise to them that they will eventually see clearly. That day is coming. You're not going to be in the fuzzy land forever. It's not going to be blurry forever. I will bring you to this point where you will be able to see clearly and fully. Everything will be in sharp focus. Because that's what discipleship produces. Discipleship brings about this clear sight, being able to see clearly, to have a right understanding of of life and, and all of these things. Discipleship brings about and produces clear sight. As we've walked through this text, there may be different questions that arise in our minds. And again, I, I mentioned at the beginning of our, of our time here that there are different theological battles that are fought over this text and different understandings and interpretations of this text and how we understand things. So I do want to get to some of those and I recognize that for a little bit, this, this might seem like a little deviation from preaching mode, and now here we are in, okay, let's, let's, let's think about some theological implications of this mode. And, and, and these things are important for us, because these are important, this is an important text. But the most, perhaps the most crucial question as we think about this text is this, how is salvation related to the concept of discipleship? How is salvation related to discipleship? There are different perspectives on this. There are some who would say that they are one in the same. The call to salvation is a call to discipleship. 
There are others who would seek to, to drive a very distinct wedge between the two and say, no, 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 that salvation is one thing and discipleship, that's another thing, and we need to keep those things separated from each other. In my view, I believe it is best to understand them as different but related concepts. Different but related concepts. Salvation, of course, is the free gift of God given to us by placing our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ in Him alone upon the cross. There's no prerequisites to salvation. There's no need to clean up our lives. There's no need to get our acts in order. There's, There's nothing about that. There's nothing we can do to earn a favor or merit with God. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone, and there's nothing that we can add to that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is a famous text. For by grace are you saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man should boast. So that's salvation. The discipleship, on the other hand, as we've seen in this text, it is costly. We must be willing to deny ourselves. We must be willing to die, be willing to follow Jesus. So how do we reckon with these different concepts here. Those who try to equate the concepts of discipleship and salvation together and try to say, no, they're, they're one and the same, often they are being labeled as those in, in the lordship salvation camp. These individuals are concerned that, that those who seek to drive a wedge between the disciple, uh, salvation and discipleship, they're creating two classes of Christians those who are saved, and then those who are saved and are also disciples. And they're concerned about that because they believe by, by separating those two things, we make the concept of, of discipleship optional for the believer and thus downplay the significance of discipleship and the warnings that Jesus has to offer in this text. And for what it's worth, those who do seek to drive that wedge, they would look at those critiques and say, no, 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 no that's not what we're trying to do. That's not what we want uh, we do believe there's a distinction between these two things, but, but, but what we, we do believe that every believer ought to pursue discipleship, but we need to keep a distinction here. And those who do seek to separate salvation and discipleship, these are often labeled as being in the free grace camp. These individuals are concerned that by viewing the two concepts as the same thing, we front load the gospel and inadvertently add works into the equation of salvation. Because if you have to deny yourself and then follow Jesus in order to be saved or in order to come after Him, does not that add works to the gospel? So they are concerned about that from those who would teach a lordship salvation. And for what it's worth, the lordship salvation people would say, no, 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 that's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to front load the gospel. We just believe that believers are disciples, that that's what, that's what comes about from disciples or from believers. Well, as we try to think about these concepts and reconcile what is within this text with what we know the Word of God to teach, I have what I believe is a very healthy appreciation for, for what both sides are seeking to accomplish in that debate, that theological debate. On the one hand, equating salvation and discipleship together, I do believe, does run the risk of front-loading the gospel, and we need to be careful of that. On the other hand, separating them too much, I believe, runs the risk of making discipleship optional. 
And just by way of personal anecdote, I personally have known individuals who have sought to justify sin on the basis that, hey, discipleship is optional after all. I have my grace and that's good enough for me. But on the flip side of that, I also have personally known individuals who seemingly have driven themselves mad over concern that they aren't truly saved because they have sin in their lives. And, oh, no, what if I'm not following Jesus well enough to be saved? And, and it ends up making them doubt their assurance before Christ. Here's how I think about this and reconcile these concepts together. Scripture is absolutely crystal clear that salvation is a free gift of God's grace received through faith and faith alone. There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we add to the finished work of Christ in order to receive salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. But I also believe that implicit with the command of belief is that we are, we are turning away from one belief and turning towards another. This past Wednesday, we were studying Thessalonians. This coming Wednesday, we're going to study and we're going to see how Paul is going to describe the Thessalonians as individuals who turned to God from idols, right? They, they turned away from one thing and turned to the one and the living true God to serve Him. Well, if we are leaving an old belief system of man-made religious or, or self-directed life, and, and if we're turning instead in favor to the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that alone is an act of self-denial. So those who trust in Christ, in a sense, are already, by, by the act of faith alone, are denying themselves. And that's not a work in that sense, but it's exercising faith in the one who has accomplished all. But furthermore, I do believe that those who trust in Jesus Christ are given the Holy Spirit, who takes up residence within the believer. He begins to produce within the believer fruit and good works that begin to flow out of the believer's life. So we think of the passage in Philippians chapter 1, he who began a good work will complete it until the day of Christ. We're, we're all in process with that. We're all in, we're growing in our walk with Christ, but it is a work that is a process that is underway. Thus, in that sense, all true believers in Christ will be His disciples. Discipleship is not a prerequisite for salvation, but it is part of the result of salvation. Think of the Great Commission where Jesus sent us out to proclaim the gospel to all nations. And what does that text say? Make disciples of every nation, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. We are to make disciples. We're not sent out merely to, to make converts, to make individuals who, who can say with their mouths, yes, I believe in Jesus, and then go and live the rest of their lives their own way. No, we're to make disciples. A disciple is what results from a true belief in Jesus Christ. So discipleship is not the same thing as salvation. There is a distinction between them. It is not a required precondition of salvation, but it is closely related to salvation. And the result of all true faith in Jesus Christ is that we follow Him in our discipleship. We see this in our text 
those who fail to follow Christ in disciples show themselves to be individuals who have not yet come to true faith in Jesus Christ. Not because discipleship is how they become saved, but because the inevitable fruit of salvation is this process in their lives, is this concept of discipleship. Christians follow Jesus. That's, it's in the name, right? Christian, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. And I can say this with confidence because of what is in our text. The consequences of failing to follow is not just a loss of reward, it is a loss of your very soul. It is not a loss of salvation in the sense that you once had it and now you lost it. No, it's a failure to have attained it in the first place. You lose your life. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. What does it profit to gain the whole world but lose your soul? What wouldn't you give for your soul? So as I think about those two different debating camps of, of these two theological beliefs, as they, I think there is some good critique to be had on both sides of the debate there. And I appreciate the cautions of and the concerns of these brothers, but I don't believe the text allows for us to diminish the concept of discipleship, nor does it allow for us to blend the concepts of salvation and discipleship together. They're distinct but related concepts. And salvation and discipleship does have implications for our eternity. So there's some discussion on the theological debate that rages around this text. But as we conclude, I just have a, a few closing remarks for us. Sometimes the, the discussion and the debate about these theological things and what's more right and, and how do we debate about these things, how do we think about these things, so often we can get so caught up in the theological debate, and it can be a very stimulating debate, but we fail to sit and just soak in what these words on this page are communicating to us about discipleship. The point isn't just for us to debate the concept of discipleship. We have a responsibility to respond to this text. Will you follow Jesus? Are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to say, yes, that is worth my soul to follow what Jesus has for me in my life? There are so many individuals that, are, that, that cling to their lives with, with a white-knuckled grip on, on what they want to accomplish and what their agenda is for their lives. And Jesus says, I have so much life for you if you just let that go and follow me. Will we follow Jesus? Are you willing to set your mind on the things of God? Are you willing to keep them on the things of man? Are you willing to die for the gospel if it should come to that? Are you willing to follow Jesus? Our purpose statement as a church hangs on these banners. We exist to glorify God by proclaiming Christ that every individual in our reach might hear, believe, and follow Him. This is what we're about, following Jesus, of learning what it means for us and, and walking after Him. This is why we exist as a church fellowship, to help one another follow Jesus. And praise the Lord that those who are followers of Him will never be put to shame.
Jesus says, if you are ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. But there's the promise of, of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call his followers brothers. And in 1 Peter 2, 6 we have Peter's testimony. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. For those who do follow Jesus, for those who do embrace Him and embrace the road of discipleship, they will never be put to shame. They will not be cast out. They will not be looked upon, down upon. But Jesus Christ holds us and rejoices over us. It will never be put to shame. So I close with that passage, challenging us to reflect upon the cost of discipleship and challenge us all to seek to follow Him. Lord, we thank You so much for this time together today. Thank You for this text. It is a sobering text. It is a challenging text. Lord, we want to understand Your Word rightly. We want to live in accordance with what You have given us. Lord, I do pray that we would seek to have the right balance as we approach these discussions. Lord, we want to live for You. We want our lives to be glorifying to You. We, we want to follow You. We want our lives to be patterned after You and to, to, to glorify You as we live out our lives upon this earth. May we never be distracted by the things of this world, but be glorified in our lives, we pray. It's in Christ's name. Amen.